0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff show. Well, it's another tough day in the stock markets today. The Dow Jones finished down 295 points, uh, down uh, well over 300 at the lows of the day. NASDAQ fared even worse, down 103 points. That's about two and a quarter percent. You know, these 100-point moves are coming quite often now in the NASDAQ. The transports, the hardest hit, once again, down 204 points. That's almost 3% in the transports. You know, I was wondering, you know, when I saw this carnage, if, you know, maybe uh, North Korea hadn't tested another nuclear bomb. You remember, uh, it was one day early in January, the Dow was down about 250 points, and they blamed it on North Korea testing an atomic bomb. I mean, the markets drop about that much every single day. I mean, what's the odds that that decline that day had anything to do with North Korea testing that bomb? As if the market wouldn't have dropped had North Korea not tested that bomb? Look, everybody wants to find some way to rationalize a weak market. But look, nothing happened today. I mean, yeah, oil prices were down, you know, another dollar or so. But, I mean, this happens all the time. We're actually, they were down closer to 2 bucks. We finished back below 30 But to just blame all this on the oil market, on oil prices going down, look, the financials got clobbered. I mean, you could say, okay, yes, there's some bank loans out to energy companies, but what percentage of these loans? I mean, these stocks are getting clobbered, 52-week loans. Look at Goldman Sachs down 5% on a day. This stock is now getting ready to break through 150. I mean, it was a $200 stock uh, not too long ago. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of air beneath this chart. And it's not just, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs, all these uh, financials. Uh, Bank of America was down over 5% today. Um, So is that all oil related? Of course, you know, I can understand oil stocks going down, but the entire market, and again, lower oil prices are good for the consumer. They're good for a big portion of the U.S. economy. But look, you might as well blame today's uh, market sell-off on the fact that Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucus, right? I mean, because, hey, he won the primary and the market dropped 300 points. Therefore, the market must have fallen because Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucus because people are worried about what a President Cruz is going to mean for the economy in the stock market. I mean, maybe Donald Trump could spin it that way. See, Had you voted for me, the market wouldn't have gone down. You know, maybe Bernie Sanders can say the same thing. You know, had Hillary Clinton not won six consecutive coin tosses, maybe he would have won the Iowa caucus. And so maybe the market wouldn't have gone down. The reality is the market's going down because it's a bear market. That's why it's going down. And the market's going down because the U.S. economy is in a recession. And there's nothing the Federal Reserve can do about it unless it wants to lose its credibility or acknowledge that, you know, the market is much weaker, the economy is much weaker than it thought If you go back uh, to prior to the rate hike, one of the reasons that I constantly said the Fed, I didn't think, would raise rates is because I knew if they did, they would be in a very bad position. Because I said, what's going to happen when the Fed raises rates or if the Fed raises rates and then the stock market starts to decline? How are they going to stop it? They can't. Because every time the stock market has started to fall, ever since the Fed propped it up, Right, with QE1 in uh, 2009, every time the stock market has started to fall, the Federal Reserve has either launched another round of quantitative easing or hinted that it was considering another round of quantitative easing, and that is what always saved the market. That's where the buy the dips worked because the Fed had your back. You had the Yellen put, the Bernanke put. Uh, but if that put doesn't exist, if it expired with that rate hike in December, then how is the Federal Reserve going to stop the carnage? I mean, it can't, it can't hint about another quantitative easing, not when it's raising rates. It's still hinting that they're going to raise rates four more times. Now, most people don't believe that the Fed's going to raise rates four times in 2016. Most people think, okay, they're only going to raise rates once or twice. Well, I mean, if the market is already collapsing based on the first rate hike, how much lower is it going to fall if the Fed puts a couple more nails in the coffin with with two more rate hikes, I mean, whether it's two or four, it's not going to matter. The market's going to keep falling. So the only way the Federal Reserve can save this market is to come out and, A, take not only take future rate hikes off the table, but it's got to lower rates because it can't even hint about more quantitative easing until it gets rates back to zero because that's what it's got to do. It's got to go back to zero before it can do quantitative easing. And, and so they're in a position where they can't really do that. So they're trying to get the Bank of Japan to help. They're trying to get the ECB to help. And that hasn't worked. Yes, you know, every time the ECB, oh, there's no limits to what we're going to do. Hey, the market's going to rally. You know, then Japan comes out. Oh, we cut interest rates to negative. And we got a 400-point rally in the Dow, but it's all been reversed. It's all gone. It's like it didn't even happen. So now what? That's what I said before. I said, this isn't going to work. You're going to have to get the Federal Reserve in on this, sending the ECB in, sending the uh, Bank of Japan in. That's not going to do it. This is a woman's job, and uh, it's going to be Janet Yellen. You can't send these boys out to do this woman's job. She's the only one that can stop this from happening, and the market's going to keep on falling. Now, it's possible, you know, we're going to get the jobs data later this week. We're going to get the first look at it with the ADP number tomorrow, but we get the big Granddaddy uh, non-farm payroll number on on Friday, and the only thing that could really save this market is a horrific jobs number. And the reason I say that is because if the jobs number is really bad, then Janet Young can talk about not raising rates based on the jobs numbers, right? So then, you know that gives her some cover because she doesn't have to claim it's it's based on the stock market. But if we get another one of these good jobs numbers, right? And of, co- of course, it's only good superficially it's not really good but it's just a high number if we get another high number then this market's going to tank because now the fed is back in that predicament where it said everything is based on the jobs and as long as these job numbers are high uh then the fed can't talk about cutting rates unless it wants to admit that the jobs numbers are bogus you know i happen to be at a supermarket over the weekend i stopped in with uh my my 13 year old son and we walked into the market, and he noticed this sign on this door. And he said, hey, Dad, look at this sign. And because he, he listens to my podcast, so he knows what I'm talking about. And there was a sign on the door. It was a help wanted sign. And it said, part-time positions available, multiple departments, you know, you know, apply within. So here they are looking to try to hire several part-time employees. They don't want anybody to work full-time. I don't even know, maybe there's no full-time employees left at this market. I have no idea. But they certainly don't want any more. They're only willing to hire part-time people. So that is the secret to the strength in our economy. I mean, now people that used to have one full-time job now have three part-time jobs. And those three part-time jobs, if they're held by the same individual and collectively they equal 35 hours a week, I already went over, that the government scores each of those part-time jobs as if it were actually a full-time job. And so now, because the economy is so weak and people can't get a full-time job, they're forced to take three lousy, low-paying, part-time jobs, the economy gets credit for creating two additional jobs. Because you have three and used to have one. Even though you were better off with one than you are with three, the economy looks stronger. The labor market looks stronger. So if we get another one of these bogus job reports, if all these people getting second and third jobs you know, produces another plus 200,000 job data, there's nothing to stop this market. But if we get a bad number, eventually we're going to get a bad number. I mean, everything else is coming up bad, right? All the numbers are bad. Uh, Eventually, we're going to run out of luck with these job numbers, and they're going to have to turn down. And then the Fed's going to have some kind of excuse. And, you know, by the way, the Atlanta Fed GDP Now came out yesterday with their first estimate of the GDP for the first quarter Of this year, and their initial estimate was just 1.2 percent. That's it, 1.2. Now the Federal Reserve is still thinking officially that growth is going to be two and a half, three percent. But now the Atlanta Fed has come out at 1.2. And last year, when the Atlanta Fed came out with their initial estimate for the fourth quarter, they were at 2.5. Where do we end up at? 0.7. So. If we miss this quarter by as much as we missed last quarter based on where they started ratcheting down their expectations from, this quarter is going to be negative. This is going to be a negative GDP quarter if we follow what we did in the fourth quarter. And why wouldn't we? In fact, this quarter is off to a worse start than that one. Certainly the financial markets are off to a worse start. The data is bad. I'll get to that. Uh, so if the fourth quarter was only plus point seven. 07 Imagine how much worse this quarter is going to be. Plus, I don't think that 0.7 is going to hold up. I think it's going to be negative. Look, we have two more uh, revisions, official revisions, and we've already got more negative data that suggests that that 0.7 is going to be revised downward. But of course, even if they don't get it all the way to negative territory officially in the next month or two, six months, a year from now, when they go back and revise everything, as they sometimes do, they're going to find out they got a lot of stuff wrong, they made a lot of mistakes. And they're going to declare that this greater recession that's going to be greater than the recession that we went through in 0809 began, I think, in the fourth quarter of last year. It began exactly when the Fed was raising rates. So when the Federal Reserve finally raised rates after, what, nine years or something, and they had been waiting for the data to be just right, by the time they moved, thinking that everything was perfect, we were already in recession. That's how incompetent these eyes are going to look. Uh, when all that data comes out but for now they still want to pretend that everything is great and the question is who's going to figure this out first is the federal reserve going to admit that it's not great or is the market going to figure it out on its own and not wait for the fed but one way or another this is going to happen eventually let me get into some of the economic data that has come out just in a la- just since yesterday we got a lot of economic data most of it week We got personal income and spending for December. And this is going to factor into the GDP, I guess, for the last quarter. They were looking for up 0.3 in income. And that's exactly what they got. But spending, which is where the GDP, I guess, is coming from, they were looking for up 0.1, which is still very small. And we got flat. We got zero. The savings rate actually picked up as people are trying to squander away what little income they have. They're hunkering down because things are pretty bad. Then we got the PMI number for January, manufacturing PMI. That one wasn't too terrible. It was still below estimates. They were looking for 52.6. We got 52.4, which was a little stronger than the 51.2 from December, but it's still a weak number. Both numbers were weak, but nowhere near as weak as the ISM numbers. We got the January ISM. They were expecting a weak number, 48.3, and they got a weak number just a little bit weaker than that, 48.2. But again, another uh, number below uh, 50. Uh, That's, I think, the fourth uh, month in a row that that number has been below 50, which is contraction. And they revised the prior month down a little bit from 48.2 to 48 even. So the numbers are getting worse. But I think the one that's probably going to weigh the most negative on last quarter's GDP is the December construction spending numbers. Because, you know, we had a very warm December, and people were thinking that, oh, this is going to be good, right, for construction spending. They were looking for a gain of 0.6. Instead, we got a gain of just 0.1. Meager, meager gain, barely. And they revised the prior month down from minus 0.4 to minus 0.6. So had the prior month not been revised down, had it stayed at 0.6, then the, this month would have been a, a decline. Uh, So very, very weak and both these revisions, right? The lower number for November and the lower number for December are going to factor in to the uh, GDP calculations when they do the revision for the fourth quarter. Remember, the fourth quarter is already weak. It was already just 0.7. And now we're going to get some more numbers that are going to affect that. And we're going to get more later this week. We're going to get factory orders on Thursday for December. We're also going to get the trade deficit. And, and that's going to impact, and not only, of course, we get to December, but we get revisions to November. And so all that could negatively impact the calculation for the already reported plus 0.7. But again, we're starting off with a very, very weak estimate for the first quarter GDP for 2015. And, you know, the problem is, in order to keep this phony economy growing, in order to expand this bubble— We need to go deeper into debt, and you know. By the way, uh, officially, we just went through 19 trillion on Friday. I think the national debt go to the you know U.S. debt clock. We're now above 19 trillion for the first time ever, and I think we're going to hit 20 trillion before Barack Obama leaves office at the end of this year. National debt 20 trillion, which will mean that the national debt would have more than doubled because it wasn't quite 10 trillion when Obama was sworn in, when he took the oath of office, which, again, I've said this before, but it means that more debt was added under the Obama term than the terms of all the presidents that preceded him from George Washington to George W. Bush. Well, in order for President Obama's successor to keep this thing going, this Ponzi scheme going, we're going to have to double the debt again. It's going to have to go from $10 trillion, I mean, from $20 trillion to $40 trillion. See, if it can't do that, the whole thing's going to implode. See, that's the problem with these this type of debt dynamic, debt-fueled GDP growth. The bigger the economy gets, the more debt you need to buy less and less GDP growth. So we're going to have to take on an enormous amount of debt to get a tiny bit of growth. And the problem is we can't afford it. I mean, we've already got to the point where the debt is unmanageable. That's when the whole thing comes apart, right? When You've borrowed so much money, you can't take on more debt because you can't even service the debt you have, and then the whole thing implodes. Well, we're already at the point where, given the amount of debt that we have, if interest rates actually rose to a market level, the whole thing would implode. We can't afford to pay a market rate on the enormous amount of debt we already have, not to mention the debt that we're going to have in the future as a result of all the additional borrowing that we have to do to keep the the bubble inflating. And so that is why the Fed's got interest rates so low. And that's why they can't raise rates or another reason they can't raise rates because how can we take on more debt if rates are rising? If rates are rising, we have to deleverage. We have to get rid of debt. But if we get rid of debt, we get rid of all the growth, the supposed growth that is fueled by that debt. So, if we're going to deleverage because the Fed is raising rates, then we have to have a recession. We have to have a huge recession because we need a lot of deleveraging. We never really did that before. We just shifted some of the debt around, but it didn't go away. It got bigger. But what the Fed is doing now by raising rates and said, look, we're not doing any more quantitative easing. They're actually going to force the economy to contract in debt, right? We're going to actually have to get rid of a lot of debt. There's going to be a lot of defaults, which means the economy is going to have to contract massively. But of course, we know the Fed is not going to allow that. So when are they going to admit it? See, right now they have to pretend that everything is great. They can't acknowledge that we're going into recession because then they would have to do something. But the minute they acknowledge that we're going into recession, they basically, A, prove that they were wrong to raise rates in the first place and they show their own incompetence. But they also let the cat out of the bag. They also let everybody know that quantitative easing didn't work because if it worked, they wouldn't have to do it again. The fact that we're right back in recession, the minute the Fed lifts rates, and now they got to cut them, is proof positive that it didn't work. Yet the United States is supposedly the only example that it does work. And that's why the whole world wants to emulate it, because it was so successful here. But it wasn't successful here. It was an abysmal failure. But the last thing anybody wants to do is admit that. So we continue to pretend, and the market keeps collapsing, and the economic data keeps on coming in horribly, and we're just going to keep on pretending that everything is fine. But, of course, nobody really seems to have figured this out yet. I mean, the price of gold is rising. It was up like a buck today, uh, 11 $1, dollars I mean, it continues to rise, but it's not like gold's going up $50 or $100. I mean, people are still not connecting these dots. I mean, here, the Japanese yen had a strong update today, despite the fact that they had those uh, negative interest rates. The yen is already starting to gain back a lot of what it lost uh, when we got that surprise uh, rate cut. But if people were really starting to sense this, we would see a bigger move in gold. But I think that move is coming. And again, if we get some weaker jobs numbers coming out later this week, we get the weak non-farm number. And if we get a big trade deficit, we get really bad factory orders, which obviously means that Q4 GDP is going to be revised down. And now we start to see uh, not as many jobs being created. And obviously, look, you can't see all this carnage in the stock market. You can't see all these corporate earnings reports. You know, yeah, you can throw out a couple of high profile Internet names like Facebook and Google that, you know, they, they make money selling advertising on the Internet. But if you, if you go beyond that, you look at the real world, earnings are lousy. Companies are missing their forecasts. Sales are bad. All of this is pointing to layoffs. They're going to come, whether that whether we see the first, you know, salvo in the report that we get this week or not. But if we do get a very weak number, I would expect, based on the way gold looks to me on a chart, that we could see a huge move up in gold, and we could be back above 1,200 very quickly from the approximate 1,130 that we're at right now. Now, you know, I've got to talk a little bit about the Iowa caucuses. You know, we got the uh, New Hampshire primers coming up now next week. On the Democrat side, uh, O'Malley has dropped out. I don't know why he was even there as long as he was. He didn't even get 1% of the vote. You know, he was probably, of the three candidates, he was probably the best of the three. That's why he got the fewest number of votes. I mean, that's generally the way it is. And certainly you would say in a Democratic primary, uh, the worst candidate uh, would always get the fewest votes. Bernie Sanders, to me, is the quintessential Democrat. I mean, I like the fact... That he at least is up front about being a socialist. A lot of Democrats try to hide that. You know, they're, they're all in the closet. They're still socialists. They just don't want to come out of the closet and admit it. At least Bernie Sanders, you know, he comes out. He says what he is. But the interesting thing about Bernie Sanders is that, you know, he's probably, you know, an honest guy. He's a nice guy. He's like, he's like the Ron Paul of the left except he's wrong about everything, at least, you know, at least on the economy. I mean, he's, he's he, there are actually some issues where I would agree with him, some social issues, some military spending issues. But when it comes to the economy, he's the polar opposite of Ron Paul in many ways, except the fact that people believe he's genuine. People believe he's sincere. Uh, and he, he has a lot of people, particularly young people, who support him. It's the same type of support that ron paul got except the young people supporting ron paul were obviously a lot sharper when it comes to understanding economics than the young people who are supporting bernie sanders but there's still a lot of real genuine support he gets a lot of volunteers he gets a lot of uh money uh from small donors hillary clinton of course gets all of her money from wall street she just got another what six million from george soros so she is the establishment candidate uh she's the one that all the big money is backing and, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is the legitimate guy. Uh, but of course, you know, what he's actually promising, assuming that a Congress would be dumb enough to enact the legislation that that he would want to sign. Remember, as president, he can't do anything. He has to wait for Congress. So he can promise all the high taxes and government programs, free healthcare, free education. But unless Congress actually passes it, there's nothing for him to sign. He can't do that stuff with executive order. So even if if Bernie were to get elected, it's hard to believe that a lot of the things that that he wants to do would actually make it out of Congress to his desk for signature. But he almost won that primary. in fact, maybe if it wasn't for six lucky coin flips maybe he would have i don't know i mean he's demanding a recount i mean i think something's fishy there i've read i've uh, seen some articles about a lot of young people showing up to vote and they were closing the precinct doors they weren't letting him in i mean obviously you see a bunch of young kids coming you know they're voting for bernie I mean, right so if you can keep him out i mean obviously the establishment wanted hillary the last thing they wanted was for a uh, 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 bernie Uh, to upset Hillary in Iowa, because obviously he's going to win New Hampshire. And if he won them both and he had some momentum, I mean, who knew he could really upset this apple cart. Meantime, you know, Hillary Clinton potentially could get indicted. I mean, I mean, I I mean, you you would think maybe maybe President Obama, if uh, he doesn't like Hillary Clinton, I don't think he does, to be honest with you. Uh, You know, he might want Hillary to be indicted. Because then maybe his his pal Joe Biden could step up and because they got to be afraid of Bernie Sanders because he's a he's not an establishment guy. He wasn't even a Democrat. Right. He was elected elected as a socialist and then he became independent. So he's obviously not a team player uh, on the Democratic team. So I don't think uh, I don't think uh, the powers that be really want Bernie Sanders. Uh, so I think they'd prefer Joe Biden because they can completely control him so who knows this race could really uh, get interesting on the the Democratic side on the Republican side I guess it was an upset because Donald Trump didn't win he came in second and he certainly had high expectations you know he was he, Donald Trump isn't a guy that lowers the expectations right he you know he was like we're gonna win this thing we're gonna win this thing and so uh, and he ended up coming in second place but you know, I was a very uh, uh, difficult uh, place to win it's you know generally the people that win there look Santorum Huckabee it does very strong you know evangelical you know religious right vote and Ted Cruz really you know knows how to play into that crowd uh, Donald Trump really didn't do it as well and he had a lot of baggage you know he was you know he used to be pro-choice you know probably still is uh, but he's running in the Republican primary so he can't admit that Um, but you know, he's got those New York values, which maybe don't play so well in in Iowa. So Iowa was going to, was going to be tough, uh, for Trump and, you know, coming in second is still not bad. And he's probably going to win, uh, New Hampshire. Interesting. Rand Paul, not that he had a good showing, he got four and a half percent, came in fifth place, but he beat Bush. You know, I mean, Fox didn't let him into their last debate. I mean, no, no Fox news let him into their last debate. Fox business didn't allow him to debate. But they allowed George Bush to debate. Well, I mean, Rand beat Bush. He also beat Kasich. Kasich was allowed to debate. Rand beat him. You know, I read several articles about Rand's poor showing and why he should just drop out of the race. I didn't see one article about why Bush should drop out of the race, even though he did worse and obviously spent a lot more money in Iowa than Rand did. And he he, he was like, what, 2%. I mean, Rand had twice as many votes as Bush. Yet, nobody wants to write articles about why why Bush should drop out right I mean Carson came in Carson came in uh fourth with about what nine or ten percent. The big showing uh was Rubio came in third Marco Rubio, and obviously he's the establishment guy uh but now, if you look at the votes, Donald Trump didn't beat obviously he came in second, but clearly uh there's uh an establishment candidate now that can be in contrast uh to either Trump. Or, or Ted Cruz, but, you know, Rand Paul's father got about 20-some-odd percent, I don't know, 23, 24 percent of the vote four years ago in Iowa. And in fact, we later found out that when it came to delegates, he actually won Iowa, right? Initially, they gave it to Santorum, and months and months later, we found out that the fix was in, and that Rand Paul actually won Iowa. Uh, and had the press actually reported that victory in real time, it might have given him a boost uh, in, in later primaries. Uh, but you know why is it that, that that Ron was able to do so well, and just four years later, Rand basically riding on his coattails with the same last name and a similar, not identical, philosophy, uh, did so poorly. And um, I don't know. I mean, I you know I personally would have preferred to have seen Rand done a lot better. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, for whatever reason, were able to outshine him and and get more votes. I mean, maybe the problem with Rand is he you know he was trying to kiss up too much to the establishment i mean the 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 knock on his dad was that hey he was too radical right he was you know the stuff that he wanted to do was just so out there and so maybe he tried to dial it back and he dialed it back too much and uh and so he didn't he ended up losing some of the support that his father had instead of picking up the support from the mainstream that he wanted to add to the coalition his father built up He ended up just losing a lot of that coalition and, you know, other candidates grabbed uh, those mainstream voters. So we'll see. I mean, I think that Rand could come back and maybe have a much better time of it in in 2020, Uh, because certainly if uh, Bernie or Hillary are president, I mean, this this there is no way we're going to make it. For another four or five years, it's not a major, major economic disaster. I mean, this country is going to be a complete mess economically, and and so maybe this is a good uh, you know uh, first time out, kick the tires, you know, just a dry run for a 2020 bid, where maybe he can learn a lesson and, and 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 emerge victorious and actually come in you know in a position where things are really bad and we need some radical approach to solve these problems because it certainly doesn't look like 2016 is going to be is going to be the year. And if Trump were to win, right, if Trump gets that nomination, uh, you know, it's obviously going to be best, just as bad. And, uh, you know, he, he would be very vulnerable to a challenge within the Republican Party uh, for the nomination. And Ted Cruz, I don't know that Ted Cruz could beat Hillary Clinton. That's the thing. I mean, I'd probably, my guess is that Donald Trump has a better chance of beating Hillary Clinton. Uh, Ted Cruz is going to have a difficult time, I think, uh, if he gets the nomination. Rubio, Rubio's probably probably the best bet that the Republicans have because uh, he's pretty mainstream, but he's not going to do anything. I, I, I mean, I don't think he's he's just another George Bush. Maybe he's a better talker than Bush. I think he's a better debater. He's, he speaks better, but I don't think at the end of the day the policies are going to be much different. I think he's going to be another Republican team player, which is why the establishment wants him so much. Um, but to be honest, who knows? It probably, we'd probably be better off going down with a, with a Democrat at the helm, right? So the Democrat's going to get the blame because whoever happens to be Steering the ship when it sinks is the one who's blamed for it, even if you know, even if it's not their fault necessarily. They captain a ship that's already doomed; it's already going down, and so it doesn't matter. But the problem is, if you get somebody who's uh, you know associated with less government, freedom, low taxes, less regulation, and it hits the fan, then that's what gets blamed. That's why part of me really wants to see Bernie Bernie Sanders up there. Uh, because then, you know, I mean, we know he's a socialist. We know he's for big government. And to the extent that he makes government even bigger and the whole thing implodes, then at least we know why. And, you know, if Bernie really is an honest guy, maybe he'll listen to reason. Maybe once he realizes that socialism doesn't work, which is a big if, because he's been a socialist his entire life. So I don't know if, if there's any point that he could possibly convert now and finally admit that for his entire life, he's been completely wrong. Everything he's believed in, everything he stood for has been wrong. Right. I mean, he points out a lot of the problems. Yes. Inequality is a big problem. Yeah, there's a lot of poverty. Yeah, there's a lot of unemployment. There are all these problems. He doesn't know that he caused them. Government caused all those problems. It's the free market that's going to solve all those problems. But what does Bernie Sanders want? He wants more government. He wants to make he wants to reduce the free market and make it less free. So he wants to take all the problems that government created and compound them. But of course, he doesn't want to compound them. He wants to solve them. But he doesn't realize that all of his solutions are the reason that there are all these problems that he wants to solve. Attention, listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold.